Good morning. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. And it's a joy to open up the scriptures with you again this morning. Well, before we dive into 1 Timothy, let me just mention one important announcement that Shahab mentioned at the beginning of our service today. It's that this afternoon and this evening, we'll be providing our entire membership class. So from 2 p.m. to 9 p.m. this afternoon and evening with dinner in the middle, we will walk through the contents of our membership class. We'll allow you to meet the elders of the church, meet some of the members of the church. We'll walk through what we believe as a church, what our hope and dreams are for this country in and through the work of this church. So that's tonight. We do that on Friday because we know many of you work on Saturdays and we want to be sure that you can attend the whole thing. And this is the first step to joining the church. It doesn't commit you to join. It doesn't guarantee that you will join. um, But it's your first step in covenanting together as part of this body. So just come on over. Even if you haven't registered yet, we still have some space. 2 p.m., we meet behind the Limeridian Hotel in Garhud in something called the Limeridian Training Room. You'll see a map on page 11 of your bulletin this morning. Well, we've come a long way in our study of 1 Timothy over the past few months, haven't we? Paul's been answering the question, what is a healthy church? We've seen that healthy churches protect the flock from false gospels. We've seen that healthy churches pray fervently for all kinds of people. We applied this a couple weeks ago when around 200 of us gathered in seven different locations in Dubai and Sharjah to pray. And we're doing this all summer at the nine o'clock hour on Fridays before this gathering. We're meeting in the side annex to pray for this church and to pray for the world. We also saw that healthy churches faithfully follow God's instructions for corporate worship. Proper roles of men and women are clearly established and executed. Now, if you remember, that was also the sermon where I famously proclaimed that this church is filled with beautiful women. Do you remember that? Do you remember when I told you that we have beautiful women everywhere in this church? And it's true, our church is filled with women who adorn themselves with good works. Healthy churches also have the right leadership in place. We have godly elders and deacons and staff who serve joyfully unto the Lord, who serve righteously. Healthy churches treat one another like a loving family. We saw that the men in this church are to defend and protect their sisters in Christ from predators. They're to flee themselves from improper spiritual and emotional and physical intimacy. We care for our parents. We care for widows in need. We honor our employers. We don't slack off in the workplace. We don't read our Bibles and let all our co-workers do all the work. We don't complain and make up excuses, but we serve God and we serve our bosses in such a way as to make both of them look good. And then two weeks ago, we saw that healthy churches are filled with members who are content in Christ. They don't love money, they love Jesus. Well, now today we come to the end of this book, this letter Well, what does Paul say in his final words to Timothy on the church? Well, here's the main point this morning. If you're taking notes, here's the overarching point, and we'll break that point into three parts. Healthy churches hope in God, are rich in good deeds, and guard the truth. Healthy churches hope in God, are rich in good deeds, and guard the truth. Let's take the first part of that point. 
Number one, healthy churches hope in God. We're reminded that the things of this world are fleeting and our ultimate security and significance can only come from God. Paul gives us five things that will foster our hope in God. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The first thing we see is to flee evil. First way you hope in God is you flee, you run from evil. Look at how Paul starts out that verse. But as for you, but, here's a contrast to what he's just told us in the preceding verses two weeks ago. There will be those who love money, those who want to get rich at all costs, those who are discontent with Christ and they just want more and more and more. But you, Timothy, you're to be different. The church at Ephesus is to be in stark contrast to those who yearn to get rich. You're a man of God. That's an incredibly high commendation. It's used of no one else in the New Testament, and it's used most of the time, almost exclusively, for the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. David, Samuel, Moses, Elijah, Elisha. And this title would have grabbed Timothy's attention. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, get away from them, run from them. From the word flee, we get the English word fugitive. A fugitive is a person fleeing police custody. One of my favorite movies is one that's actually over 20 years old now, and it's called The Fugitive. Maybe you've heard of it. It stars Harrison Ford as a man who's wrongly accused and falsely convicted of murdering his wife. And Tommy Lee Jones is the police chief assigned to hunt Ford's character down after his police van crashes on the way to prison and and Ford escapes. He embarks on an epic run through forests and into hospitals, wearing different disguises. Even at one point in the movie, Ford's character actually jumps off a cliff into a waterfall to evade the authorities. But he knows he's got to do whatever he can to avoid the police. He realizes his life is at stake. If he can't escape, he'll be thrown in the prison. He won't be able to prove his innocence. And so he does whatever he can to evade the pursuit of the authorities. Now, Jones's character in the movie does whatever he can to find the fugitive. He assembles a mass army of police officers. And my favorite quote in the movie is is when he says to his police officers, what I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, and dog house in that area. When these police, they worked day and night. They were looking every single place, looking for the fugitive. What's the same picture we get in our text today? Sin will hunt you down. It'll seek to destroy you. We should be running like a fugitive, running away from the lusts of our flesh. It's like Ford's character. Our lives are at stake. We outrun our lusts at all costs. If it takes jumping off a cliff, we jump. If it takes cutting off our hand, we cut off our hand. Now, of course, I'm speaking in metaphor. (laughs) Sort of. Now, don't leave here today, cut off your hand and say, well, the pastor told me to do it. But hear me say this. This is very, very, very serious. Do what you need to do. The text is saying you take drastic measures. You run. You flee. Your soul is at stake. I mean, hear the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 9. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Run from adultery. Run from greed. Run from worldly desires. Flee like a fugitive. Run for your life. Run from unethical plans to earn money. Run fast. Run now. Run with the help of someone. And flee. I don't know what your situation is, but get out of any deceptive money-making schemes. Break off that evil business partnership. Break off that unethical activity. Maybe you do it in the name of, well, everyone does it in Dubai. No, Christian friend, Christians don't do it. Run. Never get caught saying, well, no, it could never happen to me. Now, the moment you think you're exempt is the very moment you are most susceptible to fall. Sin is a crouching tiger seeking someone to devour. Let it not be you. But you can't just run away from something. You've got to run to something, don't you? Well, the second thing Paul tells us to do is to pursue Christ. Flee evil temptations and desires. Run to Christ. Pursue him. Look at the rest of verse 11. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Yes, run from sin, but friend, run to Christ. Pursue these Christ-like characteristics. Righteousness is living in a Christ-like way among other people. Godliness is your holy behavior before the eyes of God. Faith and love is a familiar couplet in Pauline writings. It means to trust God. To love others. Steadfastness is perseverance in hopeless times. Gentleness is a kindness with difficult people and trying circumstances. Unfortunately, our normal tendency is to flee from God and to turn to earthly things that we think will give us fullness and joy. Many of us fool ourselves into thinking that we're living godly lives because we're here on Friday morning. And yet the rest of the week, we're living in a completely different way. For some of us, the temptation is to stick one foot in church and then to stick that same foot out in the world of sin the rest of the week. You know, we never really flee evil to fully pursue Christ. Now, let me ask you a serious question. Have you heard of the hokey pokey? Anybody heard of the hokey pokey? That might seem a bit random to ask, but I have a point eventually. The Hokey Pokey was a song recorded back in the 1940s by a band called the Ram Trio. In the UK, I think it's called the Hokey Cokey. In the Philippines, it has the most amazing name. It's called the Boogie Boogie. (laughs) Because everyone knows it's always more fun in the Philippines, right? (laughs) No matter how you title it, it's the same idea. It goes something like this, right? You put your right foot in, you put your right foot out. You put your right foot in and you shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey, or in the Philippines, you dance with boogie boogie, and you turn yourself around, and that's what it's all about, right? Well, that's as close to singing as I'm ever going to do up here. <laughs> Sorry, Glenn, I had to, do, had to do a little bit, but that's it. I'm done. Now, I do have a point. Friends, this is what some of us do with our sin, We play the hokey pokey with it. You try to put one foot in 
And then you put that same foot out. You put one foot in the church. And then you put that same foot out in the world. You put one foot in singing songs to God on Friday morning. And then you put one foot back out to that club at night chasing women or men. Maybe you put one foot in your community group. You're offering prayer requests to your group and before God. And yet later on, you put that foot in your workplace and you're mean to your coworkers. You despise your boss. You gossip behind their backs. Maybe you put one foot into your devotional time and you, you pray and you read your Bibles. But then you put that foot back out as you spend all your energy trying to earn money and you neglect your family. Now, Colin Buchanan, the great Australian uh, children's songwriter who's done a couple conferences for us, he gets it right. He's got another version of the hokey pokey. He calls it the Jesus hokey pokey. And he's got it right. He says in his main line of that song, you put your whole self in because that's what it's all about. A friend, as a Christian, we don't just stick one part of ourselves or one part of our body or one part of our lives in and then the rest of it, oh, we kind of live however we want to live the rest of the time as if that's going to make us holy or that's going to make us righteous before God. Now, as Christians, we put our whole self in our pursuit of God. You can't half-heartedly pursue Christ. You can't have two masters, the world and Jesus. You pursue him with all of your being, not sometimes in, sometimes out. No, we need to be all in. We put our whole self in our pursuit of Jesus. We must flee sin like a fugitive running from the authorities, but we must pursue Christ with every gram of our being. Flee the love of money. Flee its accompanying sins. Flee evil and let Christ fill your heart. Well, we see a third way we hope in God. It's in verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. As Christians, we fight the good fight. This is our fight for right doctrine. We can't separate life from belief or doctrine. Just like in chapter 4, verse 16, watch your life and the teaching closely. You have to do both. Doctrine without life is a dead faith. Life without doctrine is a dangerous faith. Now Paul's image here is one of an athletic competition or a military battle. You can imagine a wrestler exerting all of their energy to bring their competitor down or a soldier battling to overcome his enemy. It's a fight in the present tense in our text. As long as we have indwelling sin, we have no time to rest, no time to let our guard down, no time to take a break, no halftime, no intermission. It's a constant, ongoing, everyday battle. If you've fallen down on the mat, you get back up. It's like that final gold medal match in the Olympics. You keep fighting until that very last bell. You don't give up. Friends, we must fight for the truth. That's why at Redeemer, we unashamedly stand up for the truth. We defend the Bible as the inerrant word of God. We understand God to be the Trinity, one God, eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We recognize that man is depraved. That on our own, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But that God in his grace has provided a way to reconcile us to a holy God. We proclaim that Jesus was born of a virgin. That he was fully God and he was fully man. That he is fully God and fully man and is without sin. We place our faith in Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross as the only way to be saved. 
We believe in Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. And we hope in his physical return, knowing that Jesus Christ will come back at the end of the age. Oh, friends, we as a church and we as Christians boldly defend the truth. We boldly stand up for the fight of the faith. Well, a fourth way we hope in God is to take hold of eternal life. We take hold of eternal life. Look at the rest of verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what does this mean? I thought Timothy was already saved. He's a pastor. He's a minister. He already has eternal life, right? Well, even though Timothy was saved and was preaching the gospel, it's still possible to possess something without truly embracing and enjoying it. And if Paul had to remind Pastor Timothy, then certainly we're susceptible to forgetting it too. Timothy, grab it, hang on to it, don't let it go. Now that, that phrase, take hold, it's the same one that Jesus, is used of Jesus in describing how he took a hold of Peter as Peter was sinking in the lake. That's the idea. Timothy, you have eternal life, make sure you grasp it, hang on to it, don't let it drown away. Well, how do we do this as Christians? Well, one way is to remind ourselves and one another of the truth of the gospel. That Jesus has saved you through the cross. Remember that God will never let you go. That if you're lonely, God is always with you. Be comforted that your sins have been forgiven. That you don't have to wallow in the sins of the past. You don't have to live in that guilt anymore. Look forward to being with Christ for eternity. Another way we could do this is by enjoying ministry in the local church. As you walk alongside other believers, you have a small foretaste of the fellowship that we will have for all eternity. Well, yes, Timothy is saved. Yes, if you're a Christian, you are saved. But there's a sense that we can enjoy eternal life now. We have to wait for the entire cake in eternity. But in a real sense, we get a piece of the cake now. It's a future hope, but also present possession. It's already, but not yet. So enjoy your relationship with God now. Pray to him, talk to him, read about him, have discipling conversations as you read God's word. Talk to those who don't know him and tell them about what Jesus has done. Now, Timothy, remember the confession you made at your baptism in front of your friends and your family. Remember the faces of those witnesses and don't forget when you proclaimed your faith in Jesus and live in light of that day. Well, a fifth thing Paul mentions. How do you hope in God? Well, number five, make sure you finish strong. Finish well, verses 13 and 14. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul expresses his apostolic authority. He charges Timothy in the presence of the one who gives life to all things. And specifically in the presence of Jesus Christ, who made the good confession himself. Now, this confession was Jesus' affirmative answer to Pilate's question of whether or not he was the king of the Jews. Now, he was condemned to death because Jesus indeed claimed to be divine. Timothy followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Remain strong until the end. Even in the face of death, profess Christ and the gospel. 
Keep the whole commandment, meaning everything Paul's already said, and likely including the whole law of Christ. Don't fall into sin. Press on. Christ will come back. The physical, personal, visible, triumphant return of Jesus Christ has as much certainty as his ascension into heaven. And we don't know when it'll happen, but it will happen. And we want to come to the end of our lives as Christians, feeling satisfied with how we lived. We want to eagerly anticipate seeing Jesus and hearing the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. There's nothing that feels as good as faithfulness to Christ feels like. There's not a sin in this world that's worth losing that joy. There's no sin that tastes as good as what commitment to Christ tastes like. It's always a lie. Sin always, always, always leaves a bitter aftertaste and regret. Now, friend, nothing tastes as good as following Christ. Friend, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the day you see Christ. Stand strong because Jesus will come back. He will. And he's unbelievable. Look at verse 15. He'll be displayed at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now Paul just breaks out into the doxology here. He just breaks out into worship. He may be quoting an ancient creed, but whether these are his words or a quote, Paul can't help but consider this God who is over all things and who holds the whole world in his hands. No human ruler can challenge his rule and reign. All presidents and kings and queens and premiers and prime ministers fall under his authority. All police chiefs and bosses and government officials are under his jurisdiction. He's the king over all kings. He's the Lord over all lords. We can't even wrap our minds around this God. His power is beyond our wildest imaginations. His authority is out of our control. He had no beginning and he will have no end. And verse 16, he alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. But this God does not change. This God does not die. He's inaccessible to sinful people. We can only come to know him in so far as he makes himself known. Timothy, Church at Ephesus, Redeemer, Church of Dubai, figure out who you're going to honor. Are you going to honor this most glorious God? Or the false gods of this world. There's no comparison, is there? Finish strong. Hope in God. The alternatives are hopeless. The second point in the passage. We've seen the word of hope in God. The second point is be rich in good deeds. Be rich in good deeds. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now we just looked at those past six verses, verses 11 through 16. It it seems like Paul took a brief excursus from his discussion on money. In fact, his benediction in verse 16, it looks like Paul was finished with his letter. 
Looks like he had written his letter, written the doxology, said amen, and he was done. It's as if he was reading back through his letter and says, oh, wait a minute, I have more to say about money. I'm not done yet. And this wouldn't be the, the first time in the history of the world that a pastor had multiple conclusions in a letter or a sermon. And so he just goes back and he says, let me, let me go back to money here. Let me, let me add a little bit to the text. Remember we saw last week or two weeks ago that we as Christians are not to yearn for riches. We're not to give our all in all to build wealth. Well, here Paul comes back to the topic and he says, I want to address those that are rich. I have a word to say to those that already have above and beyond what they need. How should they live? And it's interesting as you read through the text that Paul never says money's evil. He never says it's wrong to have money. He doesn't tell the rich people to give away all of their money and to live in poverty. He never says those things. He doesn't say you can't be a wealthy Christian. But he does give us two big warnings to the rich. The first warning. Don't be proud of your riches. Don't be haughty about your money. That word combines two two thoughts. To think and exalted thoughts. So you're not to think exalted thoughts about yourself and your money. Now the great author Boris Pasternak commented on riches when his character Dr. Zhivago observed of the famously wealthy Russians and said, Wealth could itself create an illusion of genuine character and originality. And because of our wealth, we could start thinking that we're better than other people. I wonder if deep down we're impressed by the wealthy. You never see a Forbes magazine highlighting the 10 poorest people in the world. There's no poll of the world's least powerful people. What impresses us is the youngest CEO with the biggest company and the most money. We want to know who the 10 richest people in the world are. Television shows don't highlight the smallest and most humble homes. They go to the ones with a movie theater and a swimming pool with a waterfall. There's never been a television show called Lifestyles of the Poor and Unknown. No, we don't care about that. We're not impressed by that. We want to see big and extravagant things. Deep down, we're impressed with the wealthy. And we think it's especially impressive when we're the ones who have it. Maybe we, maybe we stand a little bit straighter. Maybe we think we're better than that other person who doesn't have as much as, as, as us. Basically, Paul's saying the rich are at risk at getting a big head. A big bank account can bring with it a big ego because money blinds us to who we really are. And so we must understand the truth at the end of verse 17. Don't be prideful. Don't forget, it was God who richly provided for you anyway. No, in his sovereign ordination, some are wealthy. And in his sovereign ordination, some are not. But one is not better than the other. Well, Paul gives us a second warning. Don't be prideful. But secondly, don't place your hope in your riches. Don't place your hope in your riches. It's the other temptation for the wealthy. It's to trust in their money. It's to get security in their job and their bank account and their things. Well, why not do that? Well, Paul says, because they're uncertain. What you have today could be gone tomorrow. James chapter 4 says, Come now, 
You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Philip Ryken tells the story of how in 1923, nine of the world's wealthiest men met for a meeting in Chicago, USA. They gathered together to talk about the future. These were presidents. These were bankers. These were Wall Street tycoons. These were the richest of the rich. But they also had one more thing in common. Within the next decade, each of them lost everything they had. The president of the largest independent steel company, Charles Schwab, lost his mansion, died bankrupt in a tiny apartment. The president of the largest gas company, Howard Hobson, went insane. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insull, died in a foreign land with 84 cents in his pocket and $14 million in debt. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, was sent to the infamous Sing Sing Penitentiary for embezzling money. The Wall Street tycoon Jesse Livermore and the head of the world's largest monopoly Ivan Kruger and the leader of the Bank of International Settlements Leon Frazier all committed suicide. Riches come and riches go. Many have gone to bed rich only to have woken up poor. Now, the only certainty about our riches is that they will certainly pass away. That we know for certain. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. That's a funny picture. One minute you're rich. The next minute your money gets wings. And like an eagle, it just flies away. I mean, bye-bye birdie. Before you know it, it's gone. You can't chase after it. It's, it's gone. It's, it's away. You've lost track of it. There's no way to, to grasp it and get it back. Oh, trust not in the gifts, but in the giver of the gifts. Oh, don't miss that. Every day of your life, as you set your heart on something, trust not in the gifts, but trust in the giver of the gifts. Trust in the one who has always been there and will always be there for you. Who or what are you hoping in today? Honestly, if we were to hook up a lie detector test to you and ask you what you hope in, what would the test say? What would the truth be? Well, here's another question. Has the pride of wealth darkened your soul? Do you think you're better than your friends and family back home because you're making more money in Dubai than they are? Well, we've seen two warnings for the rich. Number one, don't be prideful about it. Number two, don't place your hope in them. But what should we do with our riches? Well, Paul gives us one command. Paul says, use your money to serve others. Use your money for the glory of God. 
Now, I wonder how many of you know who Mukesh Ambani is. Some of you, those of you from India or have lived in India. He's the richest man in India. He's worth over $20 billion. He recently built a private skyscraper that is 34 floors tall. It's actually the equivalent of a 60-story building because most of the floors are double height. It's his personal home in Mumbai. It's where his family lives. It's a skyscraper. He has a staff of over 600 who work around the clock just to maintain the home. The home, though, is just worth a humble $1 billion. It has not one but three helicopter pads, six floors of parking, nine elevators, floating gardens. I'm not even sure what a floating garden is, but it sounds fancy. They're just kind of flowers are floating in the air. Now, many in Mumbai have questioned Ambani's use of wealth. One reporter says that Ambani is, Ambani is an example of a rich man who lacks empathy for the poor. He says, the person who lives in there should be concerned about what he sees around him and should ask how he can make a difference. If he is not, then it's sad because this country needs people to allocate some of their enormous wealth to finding ways of mitigating the hardship that people have. Now, others have said that his home is shameful in a nation where many children go hungry. Now, I don't know Ambani's heart. Maybe he does a lot of good for the hurting. I don't know. But the question is, how should the rich use their money? Is there an alternative to building skyscrapers for your home? Remember, this letter to Timothy was read aloud in Ephesus, likely in many wealthy Ephesian homes. People would gather together in rich homes. You'd have the letter read to a mixed congregation of the wealthy, perhaps wealthy masters and poor slaves. Now, wonder what was going through the minds of the wealthy as this letter was being read. Maybe they needed to turn to God and to the poor and repent. In a sense, this is what's being done here at Redeemer. We're reading through this letter and many of us are wealthy. In fact, the problem with using Mukesh Ambani as an example is that it has a major downside. You might be sitting here thinking, well, pastor, I'm not rich like that, therefore I'm not rich. Let me ask you some questions. Now that you've been in Dubai earning money, how do your wages compare to those back home? How do they compare to the rest of the world? Are you worried about what you're going to do for lunch later today? How are you going to find food? Well, probably not. I would say this, most of us, maybe not all, but most of us sitting in this room right now are wealthy by the world's standards. We're rich. Most of us make more money than we did back home. Most of us make more, more money than the rest of our families. Most of us make more money than we need. For many of you, the reality is you're rich. I want that to settle in for a minute. When Jesus talks about the rich in the Bible, he's not just talking about the Ambani's of the world. He's talking about you and he's talking about me. He's talking about those who have more than enough. And what does he tell us? Well, verse 18, we're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. But the only other place that phrase do good is used in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 14. It's where Luke tells of God showering gifts on his hearers. That's what we're to do. We're to shower good gifts on those around us. 
Now, I love this imagery. The rich are to be rich in good deeds because God has richly provided for us. I love that imagery. I love that picture. It's a radical reversal of worldly values. We're to use our money for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now, it's not wrong to be a rich Christian. It's wrong to be a rich living, rich obsessed Christian. So let me give us some questions to diagnose our own hearts. Let me ask you three questions that you should ask yourself to see how you're doing. First question. Do I spend time looking for ways to give? It's part of my day, part of my week, part of my prayers. Am I looking for ways to give? How much thought and intentionality do you put into giving? Do you daydream about how you can bless others with what you have? Or do you lay in bed at night thinking about how much you've saved or how much you can buy for yourself? Are there people in your life in need right now? Are your eyes open to the needs around you? Are you on alert? As verse 18 says, are you ready to share? We need to hold our money with a loose hand and have a spontaneous system for giving when there's a need. To be ready to share on a moment's notice. To pray for opportunities to give. A second question. Am I giving generously to the needs around me? Am I giving generously to the needs around me? Now, Christians should give according to their wealth. Not simply out of their wealth. I've heard that said a time and time before. That we shouldn't just give out of it, but according to it. Meaning if you make 5,000 dirhams a month, giving 50 dirhams a month to God's work in the church is out of your wealth. It's not according to your wealth. If God has blessed you with riches, use your riches to serve God's work according to your wealth. Give to the poor abundantly. Give to the church generously. Give out of your first fruits before you spend it. Give to a church planter or a missionary in need. Give to the needy. Give to orphans. Help people adopt children. Give to widows. For it is more blessed to give than to receive. Our third question. Here's one we can apply right now. Am I excited about the opportunities to serve this month? Am I excited about the opportunities to serve this month? You're probably aware that Ramadan began yesterday. It's the Muslim holy month where Muslims fast from sunup to sundown. It's a great time for us to honor God by loving our Muslim friends. It's an opportunity for us to be rich in good deeds towards them. And yet it's popular, it's a popular refrain here in Dubai for all, and not just, not just non-Christians, but for Christians alike. It's popular for us to lament Ramadan, to even complain about it, often within earshot of our Muslim co-worker or friend. We talk about how we're inconvenienced for a few weeks, how restaurants aren't open during the day, and how we can't wait for our holiday to start so we can get out of here. But it's actually an incredible time for ministry. It's perhaps the easiest time of the year to spark gospel conversations. It's a time to show our love and interest for our friends by asking good heart-penetrating questions. Ramadan is a time to talk to our friends about Jesus. It's a time to respect our friends' fasting by not flaunting our own freedoms. 
Ramadan is also a time when we tone down our musical instruments to honor the hotel's request and to be considerate of the Muslims celebrating the fast. On a very practical note, Ramadan is an opportunity for us to make food and to bring to our neighbor at iftar. Iftar is the breaking of the fast every night when the sun goes down. Now, this is the way our family has begun and deepened friendships with our neighbors each year. It's become a tradition for our family. It's as simple as this. Make some food, put it in a container, walk down your hallway or walk down your street, knock on the door, and give it to your neighbor. You can do it in the late afternoon or you can do it just before iftar in the early evening. Now, one thing we could all do tonight is to make a schedule of our cooking for this week and each night bring food to a different neighbor. Add a batch to what you're already cooking and go make a new friend. If you're insecure that you've lived in your flat for the past year and have never met your neighbors, that's okay. Just, just repent of your laziness or repent of your fear. And use Ramadan as a great bridge to building friendships with your Muslim neighbors. And as an added bonus here, Here's a secret. You'll likely receive something in return. (laughs) We did this yesterday afternoon, and our Libyan neighbors, they supplied us with a huge tray of delicious iftar food. Now, I'm not advocating for a kind of Ramadan prosperity gospel. I'm not promising you'll receive in abundance. But this is a great opportunity to deepen friendships, to to bridge out during Ramadan, to embrace Ramadan, to embrace this month, to enjoy this month, to talk about the gospel with your friends, to, to reach out. Don't loathe this month. Don't complain about it. Be rich in good deeds towards your Muslim friends and coworkers and neighbors. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. As Christians, we look for good ways to be rich in our deeds. Well, Paul gives us a dazzling incentive for doing this in verse 19. He says, if you do this, you thus store up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, when we're rich in good works, we're actually saving something. It's incredible. When we give away our money generously or serve our neighbor and grow the, or grow the church's ministry, we lose what's uncertain. We lose what's temporary. But we gain something that is certain and something that is eternal. It's mind-boggling. It's backwards. We give of temporary things to receive eternal things. And it's not more money as false teachers say. We're storing up something even better. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not store for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Oh, Redeemer Church family, use your money for earthly good and for heavenly glory. Hope in God. Be rich in good deeds. And now the third and final point in our passage and in the entire book. Number three, guard the truth. Timothy, church at Ephesus, Redeemer, church, guard the truth. Verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There were no safety deposit boxes in the ancient world. There were no banks like we have banks. When someone went on a long trip, they left their valued possessions with someone that they could trust to guard it. 
Timothy, you have a valuable possession. But what has been entrusted to Timothy? What's the truth about God? Timothy had received the doctrines of the Christian faith and needed to guard them with his life. If you're not yet a believer, this truth starts with what we call the gospel. This is the essence, the central element that Timothy was to guard, was to protect, was to not neglect. It's the gospel. It's the knowledge that the one God of the universe is holy, that he is righteous, that he is just, that he is perfect in every way. He created everything in this world, including making humans in his image. You and I were made to enjoy God and to live under his loving rule and reign forever. But everything took a terrible turn when the first two humans, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They rejected God. They rebelled. They, they gave into sins of independence. They wanted to rewrite God's rule book. And in essence, they wanted to be God themselves. And each of us has followed their lead. But because God is holy, because God is perfect, because he's a just creator, our sins of rebellion and independence bring us due judgment of wrath and God's judgment. And yet we're not without hope. God did not leave us hopelessly dead, but has provided a way for us to be reconciled to that same God. That Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, left the riches of heaven to come down to earth to be born of a virgin in an insignificant town to a teenage woman. He wasn't any ordinary baby. This baby was born with the express purpose of dying. After proclaiming he was divine and his preaching and miracles, he marched innocently to his death on a cross. It was there at Calvary that he would take upon the sins of his people. And to prove that he conquered death on the third day, this dead one would rise from the dead. This dead one would give hope to all people. Oh friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, maybe you've been tracking with us through First Timothy and you've been hearing this message time and time again. Oh friend, I urge you to turn from your sin. There's nothing you can do on your own to buy salvation. You can't pay for it out of your earthly bank account because Jesus has already paid for it. You only need to trust in him and to turn from your sin and repentance. Well, if you're a believer... Friend, we need to guard this gospel. We need to guard this truth. We need to preach them in our homes, teach them to our children. We need to boldly sing of them. A Christian is to be a faithful trustee of the gospel. We don't innovate it. We don't change it. We don't distort it. We don't reinterpret it. We guard it in the safety deposit box of our hearts and minds. And we fight for it like an Olympic champion wrestler. And we turn away from the irreverent babble around us for verse 21 By professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Some have failed to guard this truth and have swerved away. They've walked away from Jesus. Oh friend, may we as a church stand strong. May we guard the truth and may grace be with you. In that very last part of the book, the you there is plural. It's not just a Timothy. Paul's saying grace be with you all. Or if you're from certain parts of the world, you might say, grace be with y'all. All of us, all of you, may grace be with you all. All of it is grace. Our only hope is to be a, to be a healthy church is the grace of God. 
We're not going to be healthy because of the talent of our elders or members or staff, the giftedness of our preaching, the greatness of our singing, the kindness of our ushers or connections team, the functionality of our new website or anything else we do. It is only by the grace of God that we will be anything at all. Oh, Redeemer Church of Dubai, we need the transforming and sustaining grace of God because healthy churches depend on God for their health. Let's pray that by God's grace, Redeemer Church of Dubai would be a healthy church today and until Jesus comes back. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for this journey through 1 Timothy. Your word, while written hundreds of years ago, is so relevant to us today. There's nowhere else we go for nourishment. There's nowhere else we go for hope. Would these words on being a healthy church ring true for us at Redeemer? Would we hope in God? Would we hope in you? Would we depend on you for our health? Would we depend on the grace of God? And would we guard the gospel with all of our might? Would we, would we rely on your grace now and forevermore? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.